Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and going on in the world of therapeutics. Hi, my name is Caitlin Dervey, and I am a pharmacist at Longstuhl Regional Medical Center, and I will be your host today for this episode on unusual skin and soft tissue infections in your emergency department. With me today are Kimberly Stafford and Tony Mixon, and we'll get started on this topic. So just to get started, guys, thank you both for coming. Our first question that we have for you is starting with the soil side, because we're doing both land and soil and then the water side during this conversation. For the soil side, Kimberly, can you tell us a little about soil-related skin and soft tissue infections and what organisms we might need to think about in our patients and what exposures they may be related to with various types of soil? Well, thank you, Caitlin. My name is Kimberly Stafford, and I'm a pharmacist here at Lonsdale Regional Medical Center located in Germany. I've been a pharmacist since 2011. I graduated from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and today, um, I've had a lot of experience with working with the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. And to introduce some topics, specifically looking at the soil-based related soft skin tissue infections, First, I'd like to say when looking specifically at SSTIs, we think of many sources from animal bites and human bites to non-purulent and purulent evaluation of cute forms of skin soft tissue infections. Um, of course, we think most commonly associated with strep species, staph species, yeast, anaerobes. But Focusing more on the soil-based infections, you know, many microbes exist in many of the soils. You can expect bacteria, fungal, protozoa, helminth-type infections. But today, I'm really going to focus more on four specific types that are a little more unique. The first one um, is bacterial-based, Nicardia. It is a gram-positive aerobe. Bacillus. It comes from really temperate and more tropical climates. It spreads through inoculation of the skin, of course, and it's more geared um, in what you see in more of an opportunistic infection. Um, an interesting fun fact about it is that it actually has been isolated from house dust, so I thought that was pretty interesting associated with that bacteria. Um, the next one that's kind of unique, and we've all definitely have heard of this because we've definitely been vaccinated with it is Clostridium tetani. So of course that's a gram positive um, anaerobe. Once its inoculation occurs, it can shed its flagella and form a spore. So I thought that was pretty cool about that. Not cool if you get it though. I mean, it's benign in soil and the GI tract of most animals, but once inoculation occurs, it's a the spore itself is pretty hardy and resistant to heat and most antiseptics. It definitely occurs in deep wounds and it, it's tissue death and limited exposure to the oxygen encourages actually spore formation. Although it is a direct wound inoculation, the most problematic issue with this, of course, is the CNS effects and what we all know is lockjaw. 
And next uh, bacteria that I'd like to talk about is Clostridium botulinum. Of course, this is also a gram-positive anaerobe, also spore-forming. There's actually four distinct subgroups that exist with this. Upon inoculation, the botulinum, botulinum toxin is formed, which of course is a severe paralytic and neurotoxin that we've all come to recognize. Wound botulism is more rare. Um, of course, we know we know of it more being associated with foodborne pathogens. And there's the five main types are associated with wound botulism and foodborne botulism and infant. Um, it's A, B, E, F, and H. Um, and currently, H has no antitoxin and is considered the deadliest. You can expect to find the A subcategory in Western regions, and you can expect the B form to be more form found in the Eastern regions in the United States. This, of course, is more associated with IV drug use and interesting with heroin use. And then last that I want to talk about with the bacteria side of things is Bacillus anthracis. It's a gram-positive rod, more associated, of course, with anthrax. Um, it's a deadly disease associated with livestock, and that's usually how it comes in contact with humans is through human contact with the livestock, of course. So we think of farmers, we think of anyone that handles like zoo animals, um, anyone working, of course, alongside of livestock. It's an interesting bacteria because it forms a very protective layer called an endospore, and it can remain inactive for several years, and that's why it's honestly used in bio-warfare. And then last but not least is an interesting side note for fungal infections. We do talk about sporotrichosis. This is actually nicknamed the rose gardener's disease. It's a fungus that's found in soil and decompensating plant, plant matter. It can affect humans and animals, so it's interesting. And spores introduced through the cut or puncture, of course, as we're talking about skin soft tissue infections, but unfortunately, it can disseminate and form lesions at distant sites. Wonderful. Thank you for all that information. And now we're going to flip over to Tony and we're going to talk about the water side and similarly, what organisms do we need to think about and the exposures related to the various types of water. Yeah. And first of all, thanks for having me on Therapeutic Thursdays, Caitlin. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, a little bit about me. So I am an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at UC Health North in Northern Colorado took that position about seven, a little over seven years ago after completing a PGY2 in infectious diseases, which is kind of a unique um, track to be an emergency medicine pharmacist. Not to go too far into it, but I would consistently, we had a 24-hour on-call program at the University of Chicago where I did my PGY2. And at the time, they didn't have ED pharmacists, so we were down there a ton and just felt very, very comfortable around the ED folks, really found like, these are my people kind of situation. So to get back to your, your question, and it's a really poignant one, because uh, when it comes to water exposures and your typical pathogens, I kind of put things into a couple of different buckets, not too differently than Kimberly did. So my two big buckets here are going to be fresh water and salt water. So we typically, so I'll start with fresh water, I suppose. And one of the bigger ones that we tend to talk about is Aramonas hydrophilia. I think it's something that comes up a little bit more in medicine because it's associated with leeches, medical leeches. 
And I think some people forget that we still do use leeches. It's not just some archaic bloodletting thing from, you know, the medieval times. And that's commonly associated with them. So you'll see a lot of organizations that might have some kind of prophylaxis protocol when utilizing medical leeches for various things. Not to be outdone, the leeches or aeromonas is also associated with alligator and water moccasin bites. So if you live in an area where those kind of walking around, keep an eye out for that. The second one for freshwater is typically going to be Burkholderia pseudomallei. This one is associated with something called Whitmore's disease, which is actually the most common manifestation of Whitmore's disease is pneumonia. That said, skin and soft tissue infections are not too far behind that. And then the third thing I think of when I think of freshwater exposure is going to be Edward's yellow tarda. It's interesting, it's in the Enterobacteriaceae family, and it typically follows most commonly catfish spine punctures. So I don't know if either of you have ever caught a catfish. I grew up in Michigan, and when you catch them, if you reel them in, you want to unhook them, they have these spines that stick out behind their, their front fins, kind of back towards their tail. And they can get you if you're not paying attention. You really have to hold them in a certain way, and they're extra slippery. So occasionally, people will get poked with that, and Edward Ciela should be on the the thought process there. It's also associated with aquatic reptile attacks. Kind of interesting there. So there's the one big bucket. And then the other big bucket for me is saltwater exposures. Most commonly, we talk about Vibrio when it comes to this. And those are associated with puncture wounds sustained in saltwater, obviously. The big reason this is pretty high on our thought process, not only is because it's fairly common in these saltwater exposures, but also because it's very serious, it can be associated with neck fasci or necrotizing fasciitis. So it's something that we definitely want to have in the back of our minds so that we're taking appropriate steps to prevent it from getting that far uh, because it's a very, very serious manifestation, obviously. Other pathogens when we're thinking about saltwater exposure is a fun one to say, erysipelothrix. It's interesting because it exists on the mucoid layer of various fish, and it often follows wounds sustained when you're handling fish or filleting them. So it's quoted as, you know, fish handler's disease. You might hear it called that. You might also hear it called an erysipeloid infection, which means it's caused by an infection that resembles erysipelas, something we're a little more common with, but it's just a different organism. So some words that our listeners might be more common with there. And then lastly, for saltwater exposure, Mycobacterium marinum is one that's worth noting. This is just a slow-growing non-tuberculosis mycobacterium, and it's most associated with lacerations sustained while cleaning saltwater aquariums. So you might you know, have a local aquarium, you might have a population that works in that aquarium, or just some home aquariums if they're saltwater. This is something you want to keep in mind, especially when it takes a while to develop after that laceration, and it can occasionally not be elicited because it does take months to grow, being a slow-growing organism. So those are the two big buckets, but there are a couple of other exposures worth just chatting about. So when you mix those two big buckets, saltwater, freshwater, you get something called brackish water. Technically, you can really have any of the pathogens that would grow in either of them within brackish water, just because you can have different contents of the brackish water. It might have higher salinity, less salinity, so you can get any of them. But one that I find more interesting is this chromobacterium bacteria. It's associated with fish bites. And the, the coolest part about it, or I guess 
potentially the most disgusting, depending on who you are, is that it's associated with this bluish, purulent discharge. So if our listeners are not driving at the moment, go ahead and Google it. It's really kind of kind of cool. And, you know, like chromobacteria is probably named after the color of the bacteria itself, but it's also pretty easy to remember that it causes this bluish, back, bluish purulent discharge. So something to keep in mind. And then if that's not all enough for you, we should probably talk about swimming pools, hot tubs, things like that with uh, treated water. And those are most associated with Pseudomonas aeruginosa. I think we've all heard of hot tub folliculitis that can occur in pools and things like that as well. And then in that pool also goes another mycobacterium, mycobacterium fortuitum, which isn't fortuitous at all. It is a rapid growing mycobacterium that you typically associate with spas, things like where you get manis and petties, something I'm always horrified about when I take my five-year-old daughter to get those things is, you know, sitting in the back of my mind, these kind of infections, but something to, uh, to know about swimming pools, hot tubs, and other treated water. And then lastly, I'll just finish up with sewage water. I don't think it's going to come as any surprise that there's a lot of gross stuff in sewage water. You're going to find gram negatives, anaerobes, really anything that you would find in fecal matter. But I do think it's worth noting that, you know, we'll see occasionally on TV, these are going to be associated, a lot of sewage water can be associated with tsunamis, but we also have seen a lot of flooding lately. And flooding is a big one throughout America when you're having people who have to wade through it to get to safety or whatever it may be. You know, we want to ensure that if they do sustain a laceration, we're prophylaxing them, treating them correctly in these settings. So if you have some flooding going on, uh, consider it to be sewage water because a lot of times it is mixed in. Great. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us have heard of a lot of these things from both sides, and then it's, the way you guys summarized it is awesome. So thinking about all these various infections that you guys have talked about, what are some key things that you think our practitioners need to think about when there is an exposure, maybe duration, temperature, things like that? I'll take this one first, I suppose. So some key things for our practitioners to keep in mind. Timing as far as the water exposure infections of the soft tissue go typically occur within about 72 hours of exposure. Um, and that's timing to symptoms. So it might not be timing as to when they present, but when you're hearing about when the symptoms came on, it's typically around 72 hours. The Some exceptions to that, Burkholderia tends to have a slower incubation of about nine days. And then our slow-growing mycobacterium can take a very long time to present. So Marinum, mycobacterium Marinum um, can have an incubation time of a few months. But outside of those time frames, you know, it might, you might consider uh, something else going on. And then for water, water temperature is a, a big thing. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was backpacking on the upper peninsula of uh, Michigan around the Pitchard Rocks area. And I don't know if either of you guys have been there, but it's gorgeous. And the, the water can have this like very vibrant blue, very clear appearance to it. And I was just sitting there having a snack and a guy walks by, he goes, you know why it's so clear? It's because it's so cold, nothing can grow in there. And I don't know if that's true, but it's always helped me remember that when it comes to water exposure, warmer water puts you at a higher risk. So Aramonas, it can grow at a range of temperatures, but it's typically more isolated in your warmer months. Burkholderia is interesting. It's predominantly found in Southeast Asia and Northern Australia, where it's obviously naturally warm. But recently it was found in the Gulf of Mississippi about a year ago. So something we'll want to keep an eye on as that spreads throughout the country, potentially. 
Vibrio is pretty much exclusively seen in water that's above 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius for those using metric, maybe over there in uh, Germany where you guys are at. And then um, overall, these wound infections are just seen more in the warmer months. And I think the question you could ask is, is that because people are out swimming more or is that because there's just a higher inoculum in the water itself? And like anything else in life is probably somewhere in the middle, you know, some a little bit of both that cause these. And then I think one other thing worth keeping in mind is just your inoculum source. Something that I find kind of interesting is that the filter feeding shellfish, so things like oysters, they actually concentrate these bacteria. So uh, there's some data that Vibrio is up to two orders magnitude more concentrated within an oyster than it is in the surrounding water. Just making oysters kind of a high risk situation if someone's to you know, break the skin barrier with one. And that's why we tend to see some infections with those. And then I think the last point is just, you know, when we're talking about hot tub folliculitis or pseudomonal risk, um, some increased risk factors are length of bathing time. This one's interesting. If you have more bathers, like in your hot tub, you're at an increased risk for that infection. And then obviously something like hypochlorination is a, is a risk factor. So those are the things that I think in general our listeners should kind of keep in mind when they're talking about these exposures. Great. And kind of what Mark alluded to, even with soil-based infections, thinking about the bacteria and the fungal-based infections that we're associated with, I really do think, I don't really think of temperature as much as environmental exposure. Like as kind of Mark, like I said, Mark was alluding to being more exposed during summer months, spring months, you know, people being out and about. When I think of the sporotrichosis, I think of people gardening, I'm thinking of people being out. You think of being exposed to livestock, that could be any time, depending on their recreational use versus horseback riding, et cetera, versus someone who's a farmer who's consistently being exposed to livestock, of course. So when I think of many of these exposures, um, specifically like nicardia, that takes anywhere from two to three weeks to really become a problem and, and expose lesions. When we think of See tetany, we think of three to 21 days for inoculation, site irritation. But when we think of C. botulinum, that specifically when it comes to wound base, it can be anywhere from five to 15 days. And a lot of times it's more associated with the CNS symptoms that start to be affected more than the actual wound type infection. When we think of anthrax, interesting enough, it, it develops different sores one to seven days after exposure. And as I alluded to, these inflammatory black necrotic lesions start to happen and they can appear anywhere from the face to the neck, to the arms, to the hands, um, of course. So uh, there is quite a widespread when we talk about bacterial and fungal. Interesting enough with the fungal infection, and not incubation can actually be from several days to about three months. And by then it can actually disseminate and become a bigger problem. And then the use of antifungals actually can extend from three to six months of usage because of that long incubation period. So I really feel as though 
you know, when it comes to soil-based infections, I mean, it really is imperative, especially, you know, after working over here at LARMC, you know, it's really imperative that our providers you know, especially in ER, very inquisitive about where people are coming from, you know, where have they visited, what were they doing in other countries and locations, because even though we've talked about very specific bacteria this afternoon, coming from different locations and activities that people do from hiking all the way through to, you know, different activities that they enjoy doing, the very first thing is, where did you come from? So, it's a very interesting topic for sure. Yeah, and I would, I would piggyback on that. That history is just absolutely so important for all of these exposures. And while we might not be necessarily, you know, taking that history ourselves when we're asked for antibiotic recommendations, if it's on the back of our mind, we can then ask our provider colleagues if they ask those questions and kind of come to the conclusion, well, A, do they need to be asked? And B, if they do, let's go back and do it kind of thing. So history is key here. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a great point. I mean, we've seen, especially now after COVID, travel has boomed. People are trying to get out there and get all these trips in. So everybody's doing things that maybe we weren't doing before. And we're having people visit from other places that maybe haven't been and then with global warming and stuff. So thank you guys. So that's a lot of great information. Um, and with all this information that's out there and so many different things to think about, what resources would you recommend for our listeners to do when handling some of these cases that might come through their emergency department? I feel like Mark and I definitely have the same similar sources. Of course, we, we immediately think of the Center of Disease Control or CDC. National Institute of Health. I personally look at the ID Society guidelines and, you know, if there's something unique or an article that they post about different exposures, um, I definitely utilize our ID specialists here because they definitely offer a lot of background knowledge and exposure from different areas of the country that they've lived in, as well as in other countries. So they're a great resource as well as with the Sanford guide. Yeah, Caitlin's clearly the smarter of us here. I don't really have anything to add to that list. Um, she kind of nailed it. Your ID colleagues, whether it's your ID pharmacists, are great. Still kind of consider myself in that bucket just a tiny little bit. We get really nerdy on these special pathogens. We love them. Sanford's got some really good, interesting information. I think the last time I looked at it, I was just peering through it. I think it did have like alligator bites or something ridiculous like that, you know. And then I just I tend to go back to one paper on a lot of these aquatic infections. It's entitled Approach to Aquatic Skin Infections uh, by Vasgar and colleagues. But other than that, I just did what Caitlin said. She nailed it on the head there. Thanks, guys. So it sounds like you guys have had some great experiences. Tony and Kimberly, with your practices, in addition to obviously learning and talking to other people, what are some of the unique exposures you've seen that you would like to share in cases for us? All right. So being in Colorado, a landlocked state, we're not always thinking about a lot of these pathogens, but one that's happened a few times with varying degrees of severity is someone who had traveled to a warmer area on a coast and then been struck by a stingray. And it's been a stingray specifically multiple times. And I, I think it's probably because A, we like to go surfing when we get out of here, if at all possible. And B, we don't 
necessarily know to shuffle our feet when we go into the, the ocean. Nonetheless, we, we have this happen where people are stung by stingrays, you know, it hurts, the pain goes away after a little bit, and they present to the emergency department a few days later after they've flown back with worsening symptoms. And these could be kind of scary because, you know, there have been a couple of cases of neck fash with these, you know, most likely due to our common pathogen, which would be Vibrio. So that, that tends to happen a little bit more. We don't always think of it right up front. I had an interesting case during PGY2 where somebody came in from an outside hospital for a worsening skin and soft tissue infection that they couldn't control there. And, you know, they had them on fake. Nothing was really happening, working very well. And we had to have the, I hope I'm not this old, but they had to fax the records over and I had to like read through the, the faxes as the resident at the time. And I found that they had been on leech, a leech therapy while they were at the outside hospital. So we were able to kind of deduce that it's most likely going to be aromonas and, and change things there, which they, they did really well at that time. And then I think just the, the most or kind of the weirdest one was we had this individual who had a big salt aquarium at their house um, and they, they cut themselves, you know, we weren't really thinking about it. They had come to the ED about three times. Just put on things like Keflex for a standard skin and soft tissue infection that obviously aren't going to work for our major pathogens um, from an aquarium. But I don't think it was ever elicited. I don't think they ever even mentioned they had an aquarium or cut themselves in it. And eventually that pain kind of progressed to joint swelling. And eventually after like the third time in the emergency department was tapped, an ID actually recommended to do mycobacterial studies and we isolated mycobacterium marinum from it. So a lot of weird stuff coming into a, a state known for its mountains, but it happens everywhere, especially with global travel being so easy. So just a few of my experiences. I'm excited to hear what Caitlin's got for us. I've been working in pharmacy for quite some time, and I think the most interesting exposure so far has actually been here at Lonsdale Regional. And I took it for granted being in the States that we don't see a whole lot. Well, I guess I should refrain from saying that and knock on wood, but we don't see a lot of MDRO problems going on quite yet, like I have seen at this hospital. It's interesting because being at Lonsdale, you know, we're taking care of our soldiers, we're taking care of their dependents, they love to travel, and honestly speaking, it's been very interesting from some of our travelers going to Southern European countries where they're coming back from and flying into for our care and being exposed to a Cenobacter, and we're seeing a lot, a lot of multi-drug resistant based acenobacter infections and they're very much wound infections from getting into motor vehicle accidents and motorcycle accidents and in and the like. So it's very interesting that we're seeing that definitely crab based infections. And we have seen an increase in the use of using cefidericol for the use of many of those acenobacter infections as well, coming from soil-based infections associated with wound infections, you know, going from blast wound type victims. So we've definitely, and I, I think that Caitlin can definitely relate to seeing this, we've actually seen someone recently who has Klebsiella, who was 
that had a resistance pattern to cefadericol. And so now we're using an interesting combination or have used, I should say, of astreonium, which I haven't used that drug in quite a while <laughs> with Avicaz. So we we are seeing that there was some colistin at one point thrown in there or bringing out tigacycline, you know, so these are all drug therapies. At one point we were asking our ID practitioners because they, they love to bring out monocycline IV therapy in addition to the cefadericol. And it's interesting that the ID Society guidelines have really done a great job of really updating their guidelines more recently on all these MDROs that are appearing in our soldiers and I'm sure in the U.S. as well. So I'm definitely learning a lot about how to treat these tough bugs. So... Yeah, there's been some really great guidance that came out, you know, not in the last couple of years and more recently from IDSA on treating those MDRO pathogens. And I think what's extra cool is the majority of those guidelines have pharmacists on them. With that, what other tips might you guys have for these unique skin and soft tissues? Obviously, your experiences show that and you've talked about other things. What would be your takeaway tips or like other unique tips to tell our listeners to handle these infections? When it comes to, you know, taking the water part of this podcast, I think it's fun to talk about all these special pathogens, but you also need to keep in mind that staph and strep are still the most common causes of skin and soft tissue infections, even when it comes to aquatic exposure. So don't forget those. You know, it's easy to, to chase the zebras. There's also no way, and I, and I hope this isn't the first time everyone's hearing this, but there's no way to remember all of this stuff all the time, right? We're not using this every day. I'm not talking about Burkholderia on a regular basis. So A, don't feel bad, and B, just have a way to get this information and get it quickly and apply it quickly. That's really the key, in my opinion, to being a really good pharmacist in general, but especially when it comes to these oddball pathogens. I also say have a mental framework on how to treat these kind of things, which probably builds on your mental framework to treat any skin and soft tissue infection. So mine always starts with patient condition, right? You're not going to treat a neck fash the same as you're going to treat a simple, you know, mildly erythematous wound. Take into account the exposure, and that's kind of where this talk gets a little bit more into that. Just know what you need to cover if you need to cover it. And then have an idea of the duration of therapy is always a good idea. And I um, tend to think shorter is going to be the better option in the majority of these, but just know where that data comes from before you're using those shorter therapies. There are situations where data might be only available with one class and say that class has a post-antibiotic effect. I don't think it's entirely reasonable to extrapolate that to another class that may not have that. So just know where that data is coming from and apply it correctly. And then always remember that source control is really important. There's no antibiotic that's quite as good as cold, hard steel. And it's not exactly our area, obviously, but we do... Emergency medicine is a team sport. Things can get forgotten. And if you see a wound that's not being you know, irrigated by tech or cleaned out the way it should, just mention it if you need to. Just, just know source control is good. I think that's kind of all I got there. I think uh, Mark did a, a great job of summing up the same points that I would have. I think with infectious disease in general, the most important thing is to be inquisitive. You know, ask where they've been 
ask how long it's been, you know, have they had this lesion for one day or two weeks? People like to kind of postpone coming in and seeing if it will go away on their, on its own. Um, (laughs) I also believe in preventative care. A lot of these skin soft tissue infections, they have vaccines. Take care of yourself, be proactive, encourage use of vaccination and be an active part of the healthcare team for sure. And we can definitely resolve their symptoms and get them back to their baseline. Well, thank you both so much. That was a lot of great information. Uh, Thank you, Kimberly and Tony, for joining us today on this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. For our listeners, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources on emergency medicine. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as the recorded emergency medicine pharmacist series, links to articles and guidelines like many that were talked about today, and other emergency medicine and practice resources. Thanks again for tuning into this session and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.